0: Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is really a joy. We're going to talk markets here and the correlations that we see right now with two people totally unqualified to strategize on the markets. That's always a good thing on surveillance. Michael Spence is a <laughs> laureate from NYU. He is more than qualified to talk about information within our society and systems. And Richard Haas has a most interesting uh, CV and bio on uh, political economics and international uh, relations. I want to begin with you, Ambassador, if I could. You have a fabulous moment in your new book on the world order. You go from Henry Kissinger's world order onto whatever the new world order is. And you have a phrase, as if the tide goes out. We shift from World War II in where we are. How are markets adapting to this subtle chronic shift you see as the tide goes out?
1: Well, the short answer is they're having trouble. You used to have certain structures and rules in the world. We had, for example, all the discipline of the, of the Cold War. And when that ended, we found ourselves somewhat lacking. And the other institutions really weren't quite up to it. And I think we're at a moment in history where globalization and virtually every one of its manifestations or dimensions is moving at a faster, more robust pace than politics can catch up. So we see gaps. Well are, said, yeah. For example, take one, cyber that's probably the largest gap where the technologies are at one end really really rapidly emerging profound effects and the rules it's like the wild west the world hasn't begun to set rules plus there's no sheriff if and when various actors violate what rules there are.
0: Professor Spence you have prodigious mathematical abilities here and when I hear Haas talk about speed I look at from an electrical engineering standpoint the slew rates the abrupt changes within any system and circuitry from where you sit are our markets able to keep up with the modern slew
2: rates of globalization. Yeah, the markets can keep up with it, but the, the economy can't. Uh, and so I think what you're getting out of Trump is something quite interesting. He, basically, we have lived in a world in which we, in America, were, took the lead in creating this sort of global system. And then we said we can't touch that system because it yields huge benefits, and it does. And so we didn't, so in the, take the labor markets, you know, the demand side moves around because of technology and globalization, and we're supposed to adapt. And Trump is saying, no, I'm reversing those priorities, right? We're going to do what it takes to make our economy function in a way that's satisfactory to the citizens. And then adults can negotiate mutually beneficial arrangements. So he's going to interfere, you know, with but a Michael- whole lot of things that used to be untouchable before.
3: So so that Donald Trump satisfies Americans for how long? I was speaking to Linda Rothschild, and she was talking about inclusive capitalism. Uh, It was on Friday in Rome, and she reminded me there are three million truck drivers in America. When we start having driverless cars, it could be three years, four years, five years away, then those people will lose their jobs at at the end of the day. So if if you refocus on manufacturing, how how long can you basically reflate the economy for and keep people happy?
2: In fairness, I mean, I don't think um, uh, President-elect Trump is relying on manufacturing only to reflate the economy. What he's concerned about is getting on with the process of, of having the economy and our labor force and our human capital adapt to this new world. But what he is saying, in part is if we can't adapt fast enough, we'll change the rate at which we have to adapt. Mm. But can I
1: pick up on something Francine said? There's a mismatch. The cause of most of the job dislocation is technological innovation. And the essence of the policy response is to pin the tail on the donkey of either trade or offshoring. And there's a mismatch. So even if the so-called cure is being put forward now by the political process go forward, it won't cure the problem. And millions of Americans will still face job displacement. We haven't begun a serious debate in this country about what to do about robotics and artificial intelligence and driverless vehicles and how we're going to cope with that.
0: Spirited conversation with Mike Michael Spence, a lawyer from New York University, and Ambassador Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations. What an honor to have the two of you here with all that's going on. And the distill, and really, folks, we were talking about this on the break about the old and the new. Ambassador Haas, how Reagan esque. There's so many articles. I want to be like Reagan. I'm like Reagan. Come on, you can't be. It's not the same world as President Reagan had.
1: Well, first of all, it's not the same person as Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan came into office with a really developed philosophy. He may have been underestimated by a lot of the pundits, but they missed it. He had written those letters and articles for years, given hundreds and hundreds of policy speeches. Plus, politics were different when Reagan was there. Uh, Washington was a much more malleable, functional place. Now, because of funding reforms and other reforms about how politics are conducted, how the societies have changed, it's much harder to to garner concentrated political power. So the, the parallels to Reagan I think are not good but there is something and Michael called it animal spirits there is a sense of with with where we are economically that this is a moment where we're going to go from probably an under 2% prolonged rate of growth to something much higher with some sort of combination of corporate tax reform individual tax reform and finally some fiscal spending it's almost as if we're saying the era in which the only game in town was monetary power and what the central bankers mm-hmm. can do is over mm-hmm. and now we finally have something large larger going on in Washington.
3: right, uh, Richard, two questions on that. So Reaganomics—you, Recon- you, you know, rightly point out the differences, uh, the differences. But actually, he did produce large fiscal deficits and the ultra-strong dollar. If we do see the same thing from Donald Trump, it also may mean that actually Europe becomes a lot more competitive because euro goes down. So you could argue that Donald Trump, at the end of the day, will save the eurozone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, you've now discovered the, the the hidden agenda of the of the Trump pr- presidency <laughs> is to save the the eurozone. Wow! I, I thought it was a secret that was only between us. No, I think it'll take a little bit more than that. Uh, but it could have some effects that yes, are advantageous for for European uh, for Europeans. But let's not kid ourselves. What Europeans do and don't do is going to have a far, far greater impact on their own future.
4: Nobel laureate Michael Spence of the Stern School of Business at NYU and Ambassador Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, author of A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order, out just in time for inauguration. Penguin Press scheduled to publish that book on January the 10th. Uh, and Richard Haas, let's start there. Let's start with the old order and what comes next. We have heard Donald Trump fulminating uh, on his uh, his thank you tour across the country in Fayetteville, North Carolina last night. Are we any closer here to getting a sense of what uh, what his brand of foreign policy is?
1: Uh, THE SHORT ANSWER IS NO. Uh, MOST OF THE TEAM IS NOT IN PLACE. WE OBVIOUSLY STILL DON'T HAVE A a SECRETARY OF STATE. AND EVEN AFTER YOU STAFF UP, USUALLY THE FIRST FEW MONTHS OF ANY ADMINISTRATIONS ARE CONSUMED BY INTERAGENCY REVIEWS OF PRETTY MUCH EVERYTHING YOU'VE GOT FROM CRISES TO STANDING uh, SITUATIONS. SO MY my SENSE IS WE'RE NOT GOING TO HAVE A DEVELOPED VIEW PROBABLY TILL LATE SPRING. BUT IN THE MEANTIME, WE ARE GETTING SOME SPECIFICS. THE FACT THAT TPP, THE TRANS-PACIFIC TRADE AGREEMENT, IS ESSENTIALLY NO LONGER. THE QUESTIONING OF THE ONE CHINA POLICY. Uh, After uh, several uh, decades, we had certain statements in the campaign made, which again raise at least uh, some questions about the the long-term standing of some traditional features of American foreign policy. So there will be elements of change or disruption. I think the the honest answer, though, is we don't quite know what the balance is between uh, the old order and the new and what exactly a new order or disorder might look like.
4: Professor Spence, I'm struck by how much of foreign policy right now is being driven by uh, economics. And, and when you look at recent history, uh, how new a thing is that? How novel is that that we are seeing so much, be it uh, the relationship with China and Taiwan, be it what we saw in Italy earlier this week? Uh, it's economics that's the driving force.
2: Well, it is because, you know, for a long time we had deteriorating, uh, you know, distributional aspects of growth patterns, but they have now burst on the scene. So it's impossible uh... to ignore it any longer politically and that is spilling over into you know the way we formulate how we deal with the rest of the world now we may overemphasize globalization and underemphasize technology as part of the political process but but the simple fact is that that the what has come to be called job and income polarization in the middle class element is just too large uh... to be set aside politically anymore in you, any system.
4: You and I last spoke before that referendum uh, in Italy, and you spent a lot of uh, time yeah. in that country. We talked about the referendum then. Looking at what happened on Sunday, what's the best prism through which to see what happened there? Uh, can we draw a, a broader conclusion about populist sentiment in Europe largely, globally, or was this a domestic, uh, a domestic vote?
2: Yeah, it's a, sorry, it's a mixed case. So you, you, what you would not want to – I mean, populist sentiment is gaining ground in Europe – uh, as well as here, so that's a general trend. Uh, but that trend is not yet strong enough to have determined, you know, a, a sixty forty loss. For the, the so there's idiosyncratic factors. Uh, there's a, a political system that people benefit from that's somewhat corrupt in much of the country that was going to be challenged if the referendum passed. So you, you've got. A whole set of other people voting no for different reasons, uh, uh, you know, not just the nationalist populist ones.
4: Master Haas, going into that referendum, uh, looking at the banks now, a lot of people said, uh, look to Greece as an example, uh, 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 an illustrative example of, sort of what might be happening in Italy. What countries are watching what's unfolding in Italy now in light of that referendum?
1: Well, the Germans are watching us. So they're wondering how much of their wallet is uh-huh. going to get picked to uh, to pay for it. Uh, I think that's probably number one, and the Greeks are also going to look at to see what's the latest mood in Europe to, to bail out uh, those who are who, who are weak. And I assume people like Mr. Draghi are spending really f- fairly long hours at the office figuring out exactly what they're going to have to do. And it, it, again, it highlights the. The precarious balance between national economic performance and what Brussels and it is is meant to to do and the, and the problem is you can't discipline national economic performance in some ways because people are scared to see that through its tent end because it might mean certain countries have to exit so you're always there a little bit as the banker of last resort which destroys a lot of the discipline so you've got the EU on this it's kind of addicted to a degree of external help and a failure to really discipline things as much as uh, you might want to in purely economic terms. No, mm-hmm. let's,
0: I want to go there, the proverbial can. How do you say kick the can down the road in Italian? I don't know. <laughs> don't know? <laughs> we'll, 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 Just make it up. up. <laughs> we won't know you. Right. won't we'll make it up. But wait, that's how I got through foreign language at <laughs> school. Uh, uh, Richard Haas with us and Michael Spence uh, this morning. Good morning. It has been an interesting morning of conversation here at Bloomberg at Surveillance. It has been, Professor Spence, one considered and continuous can down the road. How do you break that, and a la Hayek, how do you clear markets? It's crisis every time, isn't it?
2: Yeah, no, I actually think it's simple. If you take the, the um, Europe or the Eurozone's entire capacity uh, to sort of do what Trump is saying he's going to do, admitting there's uncertainty, use fiscal measures to make it easier to do the structural reforms, they could change the growth pattern. Now, cynics will say that's not very likely, but it's not, it's not very hard uh, to see what path. They, you know, if you started going down that path, Draghi could raise the interest rates. Then they'd start the restructuring that, that Richard talked about. You, you know, Italy couldn't sit there with a sovereign debt-to-GDP ratio of 135 percent, and a whole lot of good things that are painful would start to happen. But right now it's sort of locked in its current configuration. Mm-hmm.
4: Lockton's current configuration uh, and Ambassador Haas. I wonder when you when you look at Europe today, uh, at the economic underpinnings and the the, the security underpinnings, uh, which is stronger? What what's
1: the most compelling case here for the European project at this point? The security case is the most compelling. People take for granted the extraordinary contribution again uh, of what's happened in Europe over the last what seventy odd years. World, you had World War I and World War II in, in, in Europe, and the whole idea of what began as the coal and steel community was to knit together and integrate Europe so much that war would become literally unthinkable and, and un, undoable. And it succeeded. The fact that Western Europe has been as geopolitically stable as it's been now for three-quarters of a century, it's a little bit like oxygen. You take it for granted. But when you look back and you compare the last 75 years with the 50 years that preceded it, it is it is one of the world's great great accomplishments. And what worries me is so many of these votes and so many of these political decisions, from Brexit to what have you, are being made on really narrow calculuses of, uh, of the trading arrangement or the economics, how much money is going back and forth between Brussels. And no one seems to be considering this larger geopolitical historical thing. It's at stake. But no one seems to be taking it into account. It's the short-sightedness and narrowness of the European political votes right now that frighten me.
4: Looking, uh, Ambassador, has to bring up multilateralism here. And, and I guess we could say whether multilateralism in light of what we saw here uh, in the U.S. And, and, and what we saw perhaps in the United Kingdom b- before that. Are we at a point where our trade policy, uh, Ambassador Sp- uh, Professor Spence, is, is, uh, is going to be purely bilateral? We're going to have a patchwork quilt here of, of trade deals.
2: Well, it certainly sounds like we're going in that direction. I, I mean, it doesn't have to be all bilateral, but it's certainly not going to be multi, multilateral. Mm. I think that's stalled, and and one of the reason it's stalled is that in in the in the framework where you negotiate with adults, you know, and find where your mutual interests overlap, it, you you can't do the multilateral thing because the multilateral thing survived because America was willing to absorb more of the burden mm. of providing the public goods, and if we find it impossible or we are unwilling to do that anymore. I think that just kicks the foundations out from underneath the multilateral system.
0: Richard Haass and Michael Spence. Uh, Professor Haass, the ambassador has a book coming out, The World in Disarray, which I think we can all agree with. And, and part of that is this shift in foreign policy, and let's call it from a traditional world order, maybe Dr. Kissinger's world order of a Westphalian system, to maybe Fareed Zakaria's post-American world, and maybe to a new isolationism. What you're so good at is not what we observe, but what is not there. What will be the vacuum if we don't participate in the world economy and in international relations?
2: well there's a whole set of what you might tom you might call public goods i mean you know that range from stability to providing the currency that supports the sort of global system and and the united states has had an absolutely central role in that in the entire post war period so the, the, i think the vacuum is the public goods that support the international system
0: those public goods, Ambassador Hass, and again, this goes to the certitude, I mean, just on the Boeing discussion yesterday from the president-elect, how can the president frame his popular certitude and keep us in the Council on Foreign Relations game?
1: Uh, not going to be easy, and, and, and Professor Spence is exactly right. You know we have provided a lot of public goods. Americans at times seem more aware of the cost than they do of the benefits, partially it 's to remind people of the benefits, the extraordinary stability in the world, the extraordinary economic growth that we have uh, benefited uh, from it, it. all things being equal as, as as decades and most of centuries go the post World War II era has been extraordinarily generous and favorable. Uh, to, to the United States. And I, and I think when people look at it, they, they need to look at both sides of the ledger. And sure, we've made mistakes, and sure, some things have cost. But actually, the biggest mistakes were nothing, uh, were, were what? what Were Vietnam and the Iraq War. Those were both, those were both self-generated, self-inflicted. But most of what we were done, the alliance systems in Asia and Europe have kept stability, the great trading and other economic institutional arrangements. Yes, we've, we've made them possible, but we have in some ways mm-hmm. been the greatest beneficiary.
4: I want to ask you about some some tweets in particular. That's how we're talking about foreign policy these days. We we saw the the tweets about China. We heard about the phone call with the president of of, of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. You, you've recently returned from China. What do what do the people that you talk to there make of the the outcome of that election and the prospects for this presidency going forward? You see the the adversarialness in the nature of those tweets and the nature of, of the rhetoric. Right. What's their sense of what's to come?
1: Well, when I was there, which was just before all this hit the fan, uh, the general view was uncertainty about as to what to expect. Virtually all my meetings with high-ranking Chinese officials was to ask me to basically translate Donald Trump into Mandarin. There was a clear desire for— Could be a
4: job in that, I think.
1: (laughs) There was a clear desire for continued positive U.S.-Chinese relations, which have been quite good over, over the years. And now this has come in. What I think this has done is put into play uncertainty about the one-China policy, Mm. and just more broadly, what will be the tenor of U.S.-China relations under this new presidency? And the Chinese haven't quite figured out uh, how to react to that they don't want this to escalate. They do want to still have a stable relationship, right. a stable region, but they, they are genuinely concerned. If you read it, the tenor of their public comments mm-hmm. has gotten successively tougher. If you look at their initial kind of, let's we're not going to overreact to the phone call, to what the People's Daily has said in subsequent editorials, right. they are genuinely concerned about okay. the thrust of U.S. policy.
0: Uh, David notices, uh, Richard Haas, that Mr. Trump will appear with NBC's Today show here in a bit. What is the question? You would ask the president-elect right now.
1: Well, I would get him to specifically react to the one-China policy and his view about the importance of uh, mm-hmm. China and U.S.-Chinese relations to to the world. To basically get him to take a step back from some of the smallness, if you will, relative smallness of the Taiwan issue right. to get a sense of whether he, he buys into this larger mm. st- structure that has, has been right. the status quo now for several decades.
0: Professor Spence, your question to the president-elect?
2: I would ask him how he's going to negotiate with China. My view is that um, the relationship... So much with, the same
0: as Richard Haas. No,
2: I, I mean, I, I mean, he's already asked, why why challenge him on the one thing that's a non-negotiable? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, it, whereas all the other mm-hmm. things are negotiable. So I'd ask him, you know, well, what about the rest of the agenda? How are we going to deal with trade, how are we going to deal with yeah. financial flows, etc.? Right. And the biggest issue could be likely North Korea. The <clears> biggest <throat> geopolitical issue facing this
1: administration over the next four years is likely to be okay. the advance of North Korean missile and okay. nuclear capability. I was
0: going to say traffic on Fifth Avenue, <laughs> but I guess that's
1: why. <laughs> no, that's impossible to do. That's impossible <laughs> <laughs>
0: Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. at another time of year david gura he would show up with to go from the portland lobster company Unfortunately, it's the dead of December. Yeah. I, they're not even open, Gerard Cassidy, are they?
5: No, they're not, Tom. They're actually closed. They shut closed. down. They, they shut do. down
0: because it's a strange thing called winter.
5: Yeah, yeah. yeah the little white stuff showed up <laughs> this week. Do ground. lobster
0: taste is better in cold water like oysters? Do they? Is lobster better now? I, I would than say the 4th that Fourth of July. Uh,
5: not so much better, but the hard shells are more plentiful, so they tend to be better than the soft shells.
0: There so. we go. Our lobster science, and it must mean Gerard Cassidy has darkened the door with RBC <laughs> uh, Capital Markets. Decades of experience in looking at our banks. Let me start with a broader question before we kill you with the mergers and acquisition dance. What drives you nuts about the zeitgeist now on American banks? You're such an observer of the certitude of people on our financial system. What are we most getting wrong?
5: I would say today, I think, the bank stocks as you know since the election have been just a great place to be Tom and i think what three standard
0: deviation move off monthly charts
5: it's it's incredible and i think what people are now anticipating is that there will be regulatory reform higher interest rates and a stronger economy and what people are nervous about is because of the way the stocks have acted in the last 18 months <clears throat> that this won't last so what
0: do you do this morning are you buy are you hold Can you? I know you're not going to say sell, but do you? What's the mood? Buy, hold, sell.
5: I, I think the mood is many investors are waiting for a pullback to buy, which suggests to us that there won't be a pullback because people are buying the dips. So you buy. If you really believe that we're going to see higher interest rates and in regulatory reform, earnings estimates over the next two years will rise meaningfully, not 5 or 10%, but upwards to 50% over the next two years because
4: of these potential changes. Help us with the, the art of measuring interest rate sensitivity. You say it is more art than than science. How do you go about doing it?
5: David, you put your thumb on it. It, is, it We're artists when it comes to interest rate forecasts, and I would suggest that it's not a perfect science. Generally speaking, the banks give us some information in their public filings to suggest if they're going to benefit from rising rates, but it, sometimes rates move too fast and they don't benefit as much. So what we look at at both the short and long rates, most importantly, too, is the steepness of the yield curve. And right now,
4: all of that's moving in favor of the banks. Tough to do, I imagine, just because the information- information that you're getting uh, is by no means standard- standardized.
5: That's correct, and I would suggest to you that the banks themselves, they have these very sophisticated models, but the data they put in there is based on assumptions, and if those assumptions don't come true then the data is not that good. The Bank of
0: America is on the edge of a double I know you told me to buy it at twelve. I didn't. I didn't load the boat. Gerard Cassidy, is that still your single best? Too big to fail by?
5: I, I think it is, Tom. I think that is the name. This company is finally on a turnaround. Uh, the company presented up at Boston. I happen to be the president of the Boston. What Packers. was the
0: distinctive? Fe- oh, don't get that shameless. Plug in there. What was the distinctive feature there?
5: <laughs> this is the feature. This company hosted a dinner and brought up twenty of its senior executives. Brian Moynihan hit the ball out out of the park in connecting to investors they are going on the offensive after being what about in governance
0: did he clear your worries about governance at bank of america a-
5: absolutely they have turned this company around and now they're okay. moving forward can
0: i state and with will you support me that everybody, including at Bloomberg 1200 Boston, will cheer when they retire Mr. Jeter's jersey.
5: I, I think it, they— It is the most
0: deserving <laughs> Yankee jersey to be retired since the gentleman of many decades ago.
5: I think they will, absolutely. They have a, um, an interesting relationship mm-hmm. with Mr. Go. Jeter.
0: <laughs> Very quickly here, so Gurra's got something to talk about when we come back. What's your single best buy of small banks right now?
5: Small—Western Alliance, W-A—Western Alliance, W-A-L, W-A-L. And they're out of uh, Phoenix slash uh, Las Vegas. They cover the southwestern part of the United States as well. And they've done a a,
0: moonshot like Fortress Moynihan as well.
5: Oh, this company, uh, Sarber, the CEO, has done a great job in turning this company around. They're one of the few companies that actually earns 15% return on equity.
0: Wow. That's enough to get our attention. 1,500 employees. How do you pronounce that? Phoenix? Is that how you say that, David?
4: Phoenix, Arizona. Good morning, all of Western
0: Alliance Corp. The headlines off the Today Show interview with the president-elect. Um, I mean, he, he goes after Alec Baldwin and Saturday Night Live and the usual. I love Twitter is a, quote, modern day form of communication. He is correct on that. It's changed the cadence
4: he He says also the corporate world is not in his words unnerved by what he's been doing yeah, uh stock we'll market the stock he points market. at it an all time yep. record and uh also says that he does not intend to order any Air Force Ones if the price does not come down from from what we Yeah,
0: well, we have the same problem with the surveillance Gulfstream, and we sent that budget back uh, three times. Uh, Gerard Cassidy (laughs) with us, RBC Capital Markets. And I I didn't realize the profitability of WAL, Western Alliance Corp. They take 52 cents down to the operating income line, and then they dash down to a 38% net income margin. That brings us to the reason we're thrilled you're on, which is to explain M&A activity in the small banks. How Jacksonian are we going to be in 2017? Is there going to be a mergers and acquisition frenzy for $0.52 on the dollar operating income in your world?
5: Tom, yes. I think the mergers and acquisitions are going to pick up. I'm not convinced it will accelerate in 17, but 18, when all of the changes by then will be in place, the the repeal back of some of the Mm -hmm. Dodd-Frank legislation, as well as increased profitability, that's when we see M&A.
0: What will be the form of M&A? Secretary of Commerce-designate Wilbur Ross is very good at roll-ups and other fancy phrases. What will be the nature of MA in small banks?
5: I think what you'll see is just outright purchases of banks, both small and large, and the reason being is that the cost savings that can be achieved in an acquisition oftentimes run up to 40% of the target's expenses. The example I can give you recently is Key Corp's acquisition of First Niagara up in Buffalo, New York. They expect to achieve at least 40% percent cost savings things
4: in that deal. To what, extent
5: four has, zero.
4: Four zero, to what extent has has regulation, has Dodd-Frank and all the rest, uh, been a hindrance to this happening? In other words, uh, if if uh, Donald Trump makes good on his promise here to rip up Dodd-Frank, uh, do the floodgates open up?
5: Absolutely. When you look back since the crisis, we haven't seen a single big deal yet. Prior to the crisis, we saw big deals. 1998, when we were a bit younger, Tom and I, <laughs> that's when we saw a really the craziness in the M&A market, that's when you might recall City sold out to Travelers, Bank America sold out to Nations Bank. We could see that kind of frenzy again, not next year, but once everything is set well, in 18.
0: Do we edge on being Canadian if we do
5: that? That's an interesting question because currently now if you look at our top 10 banks and you look at the amount of assets that they control relative to the entire banking system, it's a very significant amount. So I don't think we head the way the Canadians run their banking operations with essentially five banks controlling the banking market up there. We'll always have a barbell in this country. We'll have plenty of community banks, but at the other end of the barbell, some very large banks.
4: Uh, in all likelihood, they're not going to rip up Dodd-Frank. Some of this stuff is going to, to stick around. What has worked? And, and uh, when you look at the, the president-elect's plans, when you look at the plans from Congress over the last however many years since Dodd-Frank w- was put into law, what do you think will stick?
5: Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. There are some very good parts of Dodd-Frank, and they should be congratulated on getting it done. Uh, the one and probably the most important part is forcing the banks to carry higher levels of capital and also higher levels of liquidity. The second part of Dodd-Frank that was very effective are the so-called stress tests. The stress test happened once a year, is for the largest banks. And any bank over $50 billion in assets goes through it. But that's going to be one of the changes. The banks under $250 billion in assets will see the most relief, in our opinion, from changes to Dodd-Frank. Our
4: biggest banks will see the least amount of changes. How do you forecast what this will mean for performance going forward? In other words, when you, when you look at the erosion of regulatory... Regulation, the changes to regulation. How do you predict what that's going to mean for the bottom line? I, I think what we have to do is we're not
5: expecting a significant reduction in costs. There will be some reduction in costs. compliance uh, departments? Yeah. Correct. But that we anticipate those monies will be moved over to revenue-producing activities. So they'll go from compliance to revenue-producing. But where we're going to see the benefit is from the fact that the banks will start to be able to merge with one another more successfully, and that will bring down Cost to increase the the bottom line.
4: When you look at these banks and how they're they're approaching the future, let's move away from from regulation just to talk about fintech and and where things are, are headed in that in that department. Are you seeing more? progressiveness at the smaller level than you are seeing from the bigger banks. Are small banks approaching that wisely?
5: Yep. I would say small banks actually are lagging a little bit. The biggest banks are the ones that are spending the most money. Now, you know, for the folks like myself that have iPhones and we do occasionally use our um, for banking, there is a new app coming starting in January. The banks are putting out called Zell. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Gazelle. And what it's going to be, it's going to be a P2P payment mechanism that the banks don't have currently on a real-time basis. So if I need to transfer it to Tom, $50, I, I could get his cell phone number transferred over, and by the end of the day, it'll be in his account. That's going right after Venmo, yep. which is part of PayPal. So the biggest banks are moving very aggressively okay. like, for the fintech space.
0: Well, we talk about bricks and mortar with Amazon. Where's the bricks and mortar future? I mean, David, I don't know about where David lives east of New York, far east, <laughs> across, in a across small burg called Brooklyn. Mm. <laughs> no one there goes into banks. It's all cyber. They have kale juice shakes, <laughs> while they do digital banking. In the real world, Mr. Cassidy, like Portland, Maine, what will happen to branch banks?
5: Yes, I think what we're going to see, Tom, and it really is quite interesting that when the Apple iPhone was introduced, the number of branches in the United States peaked. Hmm. So we are actually seeing a decline in the number of branches. So over the next 10 years, what we expect is fewer branches and smaller branches, and the branches of the future will have less people in them. It will be more... More machines. If you get a chance fit on Fifth and Fifty Third here in the city, um, Citibank, Fifth and Fifty Second, I should say, Citibank has a wonderful, brand new branch of the future, and it looks almost like an Apple store. Believe it or not.
4: If, if, if I'm playing matchmaker here, looking at uh, what's complementary about two different small banks, what am I looking for? Is it is it purely based on geography, or when you see these mergers, what's what's driving them? Two factors, and you identified one of them, which is geography.
5: The second is the age of management, and believe it or not, it goes back to that uh, issue of is the is the management team ready to retire, and do they control the decision on whether to keep the bank independent or not? And so, I think what we'll see is management's reach peak or management's age, but their banks reach peak profitability. That's when yeah. they're going to look to hit the bid, maybe.
0: Okay, walk me through. A merger. You mentioned 40% synergy savings for First Niagara taken out by Key Corp. On a given merger, what's the normal synergy takeout that people benefit from?
5: When it's an intra market deal where there's a lot of overlap. 30 to 40% is to not 40%. uncommon, and some have even gone as high as 45, 50 And what
0: will it do for ROE if two smart people decide to get together?
5: The ROE in this particular case was going to increase by over 200 basis points in this transaction. They'll pick up, they'll go
0: from 10 to 12 or 8 to 10, whatever the 8, number is.
5: Exactly, Tom.
0: And that's really the underlying tone for mergers. Does the government want mergers to occur even though they'll never say it?
5: I do believe at some asset size they are very supportive of consolidation because they believe it will be a sturdier Mm -hmm. banking system. But they will not allow the top banks to do deals because they don't want another too-big-to-fail bank.
0: When David Gurr and I do our remote in Portland, Maine – uh, for bloomberg 1200 boston is there snow memorial day or do, can we go memorial day or do we have to wait inches, for to, to be 50 degrees fourth of july
5: you got to keep your ll bean boots yes, on boots oh, you you know, <laughs> i have the lined version <laughs> and it will be warm but it, it won't be as warm as. so i can sure. wear a
0: suit and bow ties in <laughs> the ll bean yeah, the the brown boots. ll bean boots that go right up to just below your knee right uh,
5: yeah absolutely th- those th- are th- very those th- are the keepers <laughs>
0: Gerard Cassidy, what's sick is Gura actually has those downstairs at my desk.
4: You got him, yeah.
0: Gerard Cassidy, thank you so much with RBC Capital Markets and uh, within that some serious uh, discussion. I will be restrained as I tweet out on Twitter today about Gerard Cassidy, our president elect with NBC today. Mr. Trump asked about tweets. "Quote: I think I am very restrained." We'll let you uh, interpret that as you uh, choose.
4: He is the junior senator from the state of Utah, chair of the subcommittee on antitrust competition policy and consumer rights. Where all the action is going to be today on Capitol Hill is Randall Stevenson, the CEO of AT&T, joins Jeff Bukas, Mark Cuban and others to testify on the AT&T Time Warner deal proposed a couple of months ago, the first public airing of that deal on Capitol Hill. Senator Lee, great to have you with us. Much It's good to be with you. Tell us a bit about what you're hoping to, to get out of these executives today. They've made their case on television in public to investors. What do you want to hear today?
6: Our goal is to talk about the potential benefits and downsides of the deal so that regulators and the public yeah. are thinking about the issue the right way. Our, our subcommittee uh, doesn't make a formal ruling. Uh, it, it rather uh, has a public airing of uh, various discussion points in order to find out more about the deal. And you know, there are some potential anti-competitive concerns with the deal, and we'll be investigating those.
4: As you prepared for the hearing today, what did you look to for precedent? How much are you looking back at the Comcast deal?
6: Well Look, it, this is a different kind of deal. This is um, uh, not one that you can look to out of the box for any ready precedent. But there are a couple of potential concerns. You know, one involves whether the merged company could raise prices for Time Warner content, content on uh, HBO, TNT, TBS, and so forth. Uh, uh, on existing rival TV distributors. And another concern relates to whether the merged company could withhold Time Warner content in order to promote its new television live stream service, uh, TV Now, at the expense of other new competitors like Sling and PlayStation View. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I think we will hear um, that uh, uh, TV Now could provide a real alternative to the traditional cable bundle, And make consumers less dependent on wired networks.
0: Senator Lee, you know extremely well, you lived it, how Washington can change. Your father served in the attorney general's office a million years ago. You grew up down the street from uh, Senator Reed of Nevada. And, uh, you know, you were in the Washington milieu as a kid. Things change. Is the whole goal here of these corporations to delay until they get a Trump Washington?
6: I, look, I don't know. I don't speak for the the companies. I don't think that. Uh... I'm not aware of them having that as Mm -hmm. their end goal is to just delay that until then. That that is coming soon enough anyway, and this proposed merger won't be up for review until then anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I do know is that we've got regulators who are going to take a close look at this, and uh, Mm -hmm. our hearing today is going to ask a bunch of questions that I think will, will help frame that.
0: In the time that we've got left with you, Senator, I was really taken by almost the domestic struggle of our unique Utah is they faced this election, what did you learn about the people of Utah as they chose between Secretary Clinton and the president-elect?
6: Well, look, um, first of all, it's important to remember that Utah hasn't voted for a Democrat in a presidential election since 1964.
0: There's only like 12 and Democrats in the state,
6: right? Well, uh, there are a few more than that. Okay, 15. But uh, they're, they're generally not enough uh, at least they haven't been enough s- since 1964 to vote for a Democrat. And so uh, y- Utahns didn't break with that tradition this year. That was not a surprise. And people throughout the country were ready for a change, and they wanted to see a different kind of government. They were not prepared for a, a third term of Barack Obama. When you
4: When you look ahead to January 20th and, and beyond, how do you see the relationship taking shape between – uh, the Congress and the White House. That that stretch, that one-and-a-half-mile stretch there of Pennsylvania Avenue between the two institutions is not that far geographically, but the divide has been vast. How are you going to improve that relationship going forward?
6: Well, I, I wrote an article that appeared about 10 days ago in National Review talking about how you can thread a needle, you can draw a straight line between many of the things that Donald Trump said as a candidate and things that he could do to govern as a constitutional conservative as president. My hope is that he'll do that. And insofar as he does that, he'll have no stronger, louder, more vociferous cheerleader than me uh, in in the U.S. Senate. And I think uh, there are a number of things he could pursue to help restore constitutionally limited government. This has been a a focus of mine. It's been important to me, and as I explained in a book I wrote called Our Lost Constitution, we've lost some of our structural protections in the Constitution, I think Donald Trump could do a lot to help restore those.
4: That would be a a new role for you to take on, to be a vociferous cheerleader, as you said. During the campaign, you called upon the the now-present elect to, to step aside and allow someone else to be the nominee for the party. You had some serious concerns about the president-elect's character, if you were to talk to him, if you were to have a one-on-one conversation with him, what would you say about how he comports himself now that he is the president-elect, now that he's going to be the president of the United
6: States? Well, look, I, I, he, he doesn't need uh, advice from me on that point. He is now the person who will be in charge of that. Um, uh, and look, that was then, this is now. i, I uh, had some doubts as to his electability at the time. Uh, I was concerned that he uh, couldn't be elected, and I was mistaken in that regard. Uh, what's important now is that moving forward, um, I think we need to focus on restoring constitutional protections that have been lost, and um, I, I hope and expect that he will do precisely that.
0: What does View High School, Provo, Utah, what does Timpview High School, Provo, Utah need from the new Secretary of Education? It will be a different Secretary of Education. How will that affect public schools in Utah?
6: Well, I, I hope and expect that the federal government will acknowledge that its role in primary and secondary education should be limited at at, at, at most. I mean, uh, primary and secondary education needs to be handled at the most local level possible. It needs to be uh, managed by teachers and parents uh, in consultation with local uh, school officials and certainly shouldn't be run from Washington, D.C. Educational needs differ from one part of the country to another, and the strategies that will be pursued in the public education system will be different from one community as compared to another. The last thing we need he is a, a, a single national decision maker when it comes to curriculum when it comes to teaching in the public primary and secondary education arena
0: From Provo Utah Senator Lee the junior senator from uh, the state of Utah Mike Lee David you know just um, we we don't do this enough we got we got to talk to senators from across this Great land.
4: Yeah, uh, and and obviously the, the the point of focus for him today yeah. that hearing. But uh, as I, as I hope we uh, we brought out there in that conversation, he's been somebody who is uh, really reckoning with uh, with this change mm. in administration, and I think very interesting to hear sort of how he moves forward uh, from the criticisms and, he had on the campaign trail.
0: Yeah, and you wonder where the the hearing will be in three months or six months or such as we migrate to January twentieth, uh, and uh, the honor. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.